Hello. Ah, now that I've got your attention, I'd like a quick word about how Cambridge 105 Radio is funded. Our job is to give a voice to those groups who may not otherwise be heard. That may be our support for local music or the charity of the month. You're wanting to know how you can help, aren't you? Well, you can support our advertisers. And when you use their services, say you heard about them on Cambridge 105 Radio. And you can make a donation. It all goes towards our upkeep. We're eco-friendly, but we do have a bit of an electricity bill. Visit cambridge105.co.uk and click on the donate button. And thank you for listening. 21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. In this programme, we'll hear from Frances Reed, who runs a bakery at number 55, and who tells Louise Wilson the story of her three very different careers, which took her from working at the BBC to teaching bread making. It's 100 years since women finally got the vote. We spoke to Dr Deborah Tom, who is a Fellow and Director of Studies at the Faculty of History at Robinson College, and who gave us a fantastic insight into the history of women's suffrage. Visit Cambridge also pop in to talk about their celebration of Women's Cambridge. And we meet Jess Hawkins, a 14-year-old who decided to cut off her long hair so that it could be donated to the Little Princess Trust. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. In the studio, we have Liz Kelly. Hello. A guest presenter tonight. Yes, we've got Susie Thorpe sitting in for Bobby Jones. Hello. It's really nice to have you in the studio tonight, Susie. Thank you. I'm enjoying it. We'll let let our guest presenter, I think, do the honours and talk about our first interview. Thank you, Linda. So Frances Reed started out as a BBC engineer working on national and local radio, but now she teaches bread making from home. And Louise Wilson was curious to hear what led to such a radical change of career. Everybody get up. I'm now joined by Frances Reed, the owner of The Bakery at number 55. So cool because you run it from your home, which is number 55. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so let's start at the beginning then, um, because you haven't always been a baker, have you? No, I only set up The Bakery just short of three years ago. I, I describe myself as having had three very distinct and different careers. So talk me through those then. Okay, so I um, went to university and I came out of university and found my dream job, just like that, which was uh, as a sound engineer for the BBC right. in radio. I went, and in those days you had a wonderful graduate programme, you trained everywhere and did everything, which was wonderful. And quite quickly I moved into radio production. Worked for Radio 5, Radio 4, then I moved into local radio, um, which I loved. And then it sort of came to a halt once I had my family because those jobs are sort of full-on, full-time, and the, the funnest ones are in London, and that didn't fit with where I was. As my time at the BBC came to an end, I decided to do an MBA, Masters in Business Administration, because I thought that would give me some skills that would be useful in going and working somewhere else. And I'd always had a, an interest in charities and how charities worked. I then found myself applying for jobs and came across a tiny family-run charity based down in Elstree in Hertfordshire that looked at ovarian cancer. And they had a private family trust and they wanted it turning around to be a public-facing charity and to raise awareness. We went in, or I went in, and helped turn it around 
to become a public-facing charity, and we grew and grew and grew. But we got to a point where my personal passion was more involved with the women rather than raising funds for research. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I went on with somebody else from the charity, and we set up another charity of which I'm really proud, called Target of Erin Cancer, so I was one of the co-founders. We worked directly with women, we worked directly with doctors to find out what the issues were, where the gaps were to improve survival and quality of life. Mm. There was a lot of new information coming through about symptoms and how you can spot them as early as possible and how they might present so that doctors know when to pick it up because the, the symptoms of ovarian cancer you know bloating yeah they cross over with a lot of other yeah, things um, and doctors describe them as vague but when you look nine months pregnant that's not a vague symptom it is difficulty in the use of language what a doctor means is by vague it doesn't tell him immediately what's wrong with you or her what's wrong with you mm. but the bloating of the tummy is is very important persistent bloating bloating that goes up and up not up and down and that was one thing that the doctors hadn't clocked before that when a woman came and said i'm bloated they were assuming that the woman meant up and down as opposed to i'm just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger Um, so that was one of the critical factors so we developed training programs for doctors which have now been completed by half of the GPs in the country. Wow. Are you difference. still very much involved in that then? Because, I mean, sort of, so fast forward, this is so different to what you're now doing. Yes. Because you are teaching people to bake. I get passionate about things that I'm passionate about and tend to sort of get heavily involved and work, you know, really hard. And I think that was my problem. And having spent about 12 years working with women with ovarian cancer and, you know, absolutely sort of pushing myself as hard as I could. My body sort of went, oh, not having that. Um, And I had bad problems with sleep. It got to the point where I could barely read. You know, I was director of public affairs and services at the time and in charge of the comms team and trying to read a press release and I couldn't actually concentrate to read from the beginning of a paragraph to the end of a paragraph. I couldn't spell... I couldn't, I just, everything was just like, okay. Closing down. Yeah. yeah. The charity were brilliant and offered me, you know, time off sick. Um, but I got to the point, I just thought, no, actually, for my own sake, I need, I need to, to just ties and... stop and not be under any pressure to go back and do anything else. So that was that. It was a very sad moment for me. Actually, four years on, I'm involved with them again to a certain extent, which is brilliant. Love it. But it was time to just stop, and I thought, right, I'm going to take the time, and I'm going to do things that I enjoy doing, so I'm going to spend more time with friends, I'm going to get fitter. I baked a lot. I baked cakes. Not fancy cakes, I'm rubbish on hand-eye coordination, but just we liked eating cake. But at the time, my daughter was sort of in her teenage years, and she liked baking, and it was getting to the point where she kept saying, I'll make cakes, and I was like, well, what am I going to make? So I was sort of feeling a bit frustrated, but I certainly didn't want to stop her um, developing her love of baking. Mm. And I went on a Betty's of Harrogate, um, the famous tea rooms. They run some baking days. And I picked a bread course to go on. You know, at that point, I'd made a bit of focaccia now and again. So off I went. I was brilliant. Love that. Stopped buying bread immediately. Only made our own. And 
I started experimenting, thought, yeah, I like making bread, this is it. And my experiments got more and more and different types of bread. And, you know, the family was struggling to keep up to eat all the bread that I was making. Meanwhile, I had a really good friend um, from school who lives in Holland. And four days a week, she works as a counsellor. And on a Friday, she bakes for her neighbours. And she sells bread to her neighbours, not just to give it away. And I'd always said, that's a brilliant idea. I really like the idea of that. And she said, right then, get yourself over to Holland. Come and spend some time with me. We haven't had a proper catch-up in ages. And help me out. So off I went to Holland and spent the time with her baking and Thursday night prepping, up early Friday, um, kneading, baking. You know, she has two tiny ovens in a garden shed. Then at the end of the day, people arrived to collect. And that's what I loved. There was no waste. It was all done to order. There was no wasted food. And they came and collected. And everybody went home happy. And it just felt really nice. And I came home and thought, oh, I wonder, you know, could I do that? I got my sourdough cultures going. Um, she'd given me some to bring home. And I literally, on my PC, produced some very basic flyers and invited people to come to a tasting day. And I only invited about 30 people and did about 10 different loaves. They all loved it. So I went a slightly different route to most sort of artisan bakers who usually go full on sourdough to start with. And whilst I always did sourdoughs, um, I would offer a mix. So I'd offer a sourdough loaf, I'd offer a plain yeasted, it might be granary, it might be a wholemeal, it might be white, it might be something like spelt. I would offer flavoured bread, so fig and raisins, stilton and pecan, coriander and olives, vast number of different types of bread, and then pastries or brioche, so something sweet at the end. They loved it, and I grew from having this group of about 30 people, almost all of whom became regular customers, to growing my list to the point that I didn't have to advertise Latterly, towards the end of 2017, I'd regularly be making up to 90 loaves on a baked day and 100, 140 pastries as well. We're sitting in my kitchen now. You can see my oven. Yeah. It all came out of there. Yeah. It's a double oven and that's and how, it. How on earth did you balance running this business, which obviously grew, but then you're also running it from your home. So how did that work? You know, trying to find the balance between family life and work life. Yeah, it's a bit challenging. Kids, though, I say kids, they're about to be in their 20s now, knew not to um, interrupt me on bake days and certainly not to come in and try and get some chicken out of the fridge or something to eat. The dog, or as dogs as we had at that time, hated it. Hate bake day because it's so boring because they're not allowed in the kitchen you know from the night before that's it it's like lockdown and they would just go into deep depression which wasn't great but in terms of you know the rest of it sort of communicating with my customers getting the ingredients that's fine that's really easy to fit around sort of family life bake day would start at about half four five in the morning on a friday and would finish about seven o'clock on a friday evening there were a few occasions when customers would almost be waiting for their bread to be coming out of the oven <laughs> and sometimes clear down wouldn't finish yeah. till about nine o'clock at night so you Goodness, can imagine yeah, 16 hours mm. on your feet yeah very long day but if I'd wanted to take it to the next step then it would have been too much it would have been too much it would have been would you've had to get an extra unit or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah or go into an industrial unit or a container in the garden yeah. and 
I looked at the cost of that and it was about, I reckon, about £10,000. Now, that is a lot of bread yeah. to make, to get that money back. You don't make much money making bread, but I did it for the enjoyment of yeah. it. And the wonderful thing, you know, five o'clock on a Friday, people queuing around the side of the exciting, house. exciting, I guess, yeah. And they love the smell and everybody would come in, they'd start having a natter and catching up with each other and they'd find connections between each other. And it was that, that's what made it. It was great fun The as community, well. I guess, the yeah. community spirit of it. So from that point then, where did you go in order to get into teaching? What, why, why the change? Okay. Um, selling to... Well, I started teaching. out just selling my bread. Um, never thought I'd be in a position where I might be able to you know, pass on skills to anybody else. But I had several customers who just kept pestering me and going, when are you going to start doing courses? I'll come. You know, let me know when you're doing this. I'd really like to learn. So I thought, okay, dip your toe in it. And at the end of 2015, I think I started my first courses. I have four people in my kitchen and myself and a helper. And we bake three, four different types of loaves. I really liked being able to see the enjoyment that they got from making bread. And also passing on what you've picked up. I guess, passing yeah. on what I've picked up. And, and I, I love that side of it. I love when they have those sort of light bulb moments. Mm. And especially when they see what comes out of the oven and they have produced it. That's wonderful. So I was teaching and I was doing all the baking. And in amongst all of this, my hips were getting sore and sore. And my hands were swelling and a whole variety of things were going on. And I'd been on my feet for six, seven hours the day before. Then... 14, 16 hours on my feet on bake day. I was in agony the following night and I probably still then on the Saturday night. So it would take me to like Sunday evening to actually get, get over it. and kill, yeah. Yeah, so it just got to the point you're thinking, why are you doing this to yourself? So um, I'm now on a waiting list to have hip surgery. So now you're full on teaching baking. How do you offer the courses? I have a range of courses that I offer, very basic ones with um, you know, techniques for rolls and baguettes. I do a beautiful breads for beginners where we do you know, no need ciabatta, it just takes all day to rise um, as we do everything else. A sandwich loaf, a honey glazed walnut, a cheese and mustard loaf, just get people excited about flavours, about shaping their bread. I'm doing a pastries half-day workshop coming up which will be exciting you can make croissants you don't need to knead it yay <laughs> croissants are such a you know long lengthy process aren't they they yeah. are they are Typically, a long yeah. process to make but you can do them without kneading there you go and you can make sourdough croissants which i'm so excited about yeah. um and now they are my absolute favorite treat in the world yeah. sourdough croissant and i'm mixing that blend of teaching funny enough with a bit of work back in ovarian cancer yeah on the side as well and i must just end on this that it's very sad that we don't have smelly radio because it smells beautiful in your home <laughs> with all the baking anyway uh, thank you so much for joining me thank you thank you that was Louise Wilson chatting to Frances Reed from the bakery at number 55. I thought she was absolutely amazing. What an incredible career she's had. She has, hasn't she? I also thought what an exhausting but exhilarating <laughs> life she had. She was, <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> she literally worked herself to, I won't say the ground, but she worked herself very, very into all that she does. Yes, I know. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing, really. Have you ever 
done any bread making. No, 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 no. (laughs) It's all that kneading, all that kneading. But what was really interesting, Linda, I didn't know that you can make your own sourdough bread. I might be a little bit naive, but I buy sourdough bread. yes. But I don't, didn't, well, she makes it. And that's Mm -hmm. really key at the moment. Mm -hmm. People are very, very fond of sourdough bread. They are. And I think it's been on the go for a few years. And I have heard of people making it, oh, a number of years ago, about five, six years ago. You know, the the real kind of foodies, the people that are really into eating and making and baking. And gluten-free as well. That Mm. was quite interesting. I think by the sounds of it. Uh, Louise was particularly in awe of the whole interview. I think she was. She, she and was... it's not easy to impress our Louise. <laughs> no, you're right. It isn't. And, and she's a hard taskmaster. Yes, I agree. But I love the way she started off as a sound engineer. Then she went into radio production. Then she had a family. And then she started... Uh, oh, no, then she did an MBA mm. in uh, Masters in yeah, Business I think Administration. Just before she left the BBC, I think. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then she did some charity work and then she got into the ovarian cancer charity and she said it was more about the women than actually um, trying to find a cure. She wanted to look after women. I thought she had a lot to say about her, didn't she? She was a really impressive lady. Yes. So you don't fancy taking one of her classes then and learning to do your sourdough, but I could see you in the kitchen (laughs) doing that, you know, Susie. Oh, bread. No, I've made one loaf of bread and I've nearly thrown it across the room because I've not been very good at my kneading and I've forgotten that you have to wait for a certain time before it rises. And then Mm. I've literally walked out the door and just forgotten it was there. So I think it's either gone rock hard. I can't remember what happened to it. I think my um, husband came and he just chucked it because it was just so bad. So, yeah, but total respect for that lady, Frances Reed. Really impressive. She is a, a cool lady. Yeah, she's, she is indeed. So you're off to your winemaking classes instead then, I'm assuming. Oh, Linda. That was not a nice thing to say. We don't give away those sort of secrets. But yes, if you really want to know, yes, it is. And gin. Gin making. Oh, gin. Yes, yes that it all that bad. turned you, didn't it? Yes. <sighs> Who yes. can we interview next? <laughs> yes. Oh, I've got loads of people on the gin. This is 21st Century Women. Coming up shortly, we'll be talking about women's suffrage as it's the 100-year anniversary of women first getting the vote. Visit Cambridge are doing a 90-minute tour which explores the story of how women have made their mark in the university and the town. And in particular, because it's the 70th anniversary of women being allowed to take degree courses, Andrew Coombe and Debbie Blackland from Visit Cambridge dropped in to tell us about their walk featuring the history of women in Cambridge. We'll be telling the story of some of the women who have really shaped the history of Cambridge. We'll be telling the story of how women were excluded from the university and how gradually they became included, and also how Cambridge went from being really at the forefront of developments of enhancing the cause of education for women to being the last university in the UK to admit women to full degrees. And we'll be showing some of the places where some of the events took place. Women have been involved in Cambridge since the very early days of the university. Many of the colleges were founded by women, although, of course, they weren't students until towards the end of the 19th century. And there have also been many women in the city of Cambridge, in the town of Cambridge, who've made their mark. People like Florence Ada Keynes, 
and uh, Eglantine Jeb, who founded Save the Children. So it's not just women who were connected with the university, but it's also the story of how many of those women, particularly towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, helped in the cause of uh, helping women to gain uh, suffrage. It's a fascinating story, and it really shows how Cambridge has been transformed from, I guess, a very sleepy town and a very, very male-dominated university to what it is today, being really at the forefront of education in the world. It's a really fascinating story, not just for women, but for men as well. That's why I'm interested in it. <laughs> and an easy walk to do for those that maybe aren't as young as they were? Yes, the walk takes about an hour and a half. We'll be walking around sites mainly in the centre of Cambridge. So it's worth wearing decent shoes, but it should be manageable for most people. Debbie, tell us about how people can actually sign up for this walk. Well, these walks are being organised through Visit Cambridge and Beyond, which is based very conveniently in the centre of town by the marketplace. You can book a tour online. It's the visitcambridge.org website. And if you just search under official tours, you'll find them under public tours. There are a list of other tours you can take too. So scroll down and you'll find the women's tour there. Or drop in to the tourist office and book a place there. We're doing the tours over four days, the 8th, 9th, 10th and 11th of March, which is overlapping with International Women's Day. And yep, it's an hour and a half tour. So you just need to make sure that you're at this start point um, with a couple of minutes to spare and be ready for a good walk. As Andrew said, there are some very interesting places. And in fact, what we hope the tour will do is give people some new stories and new ideas to think about when they're looking at key sites in the centre of town, places they might be very familiar with, but they might not know just what happened there in the past in connection with the story of women here. I think their walks sound really interesting. I, I also thought it was uh, quite uh, enlightening to know that it's 70th, well, 70th anniversary of women being allowed to take degree courses. Yep. They totally. were really focused on that, actually. Yeah. They, they, they did say that is one of the key things that they're trying to get across with this walk, that uh, it's not just about the 100-year anniversary, mm. and uh, it's also about that. Mm, exactly, and mm-hmm. and I found that that's, that's a part of history, I find, that has, again, not been told. I don't remember ever learning about that in no. school, and no. it's great to see that happening. Coming up, we'll speak to Dr Deborah Tom, who is a historian at Robinson College, Cambridge, She talks about the history of women's suffrage and about walks she's doing. To be clear, these are not the same walks as discussed by Visit Cambridge. This is 21st Century Women. Now, as we said earlier, it's 100 years since some women were given the right to vote in the UK and there are lots of events going on to celebrate this anniversary. Linda Ness spoke to Dr Deborah Tom from Robinson College in Cambridge who talked about the events going on and the history of women's suffrage. There are lots of events going on at the moment in Cambridge to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of women getting the right to vote in 1918. One of the people involved is Dr Deborah Tom, who is a Fellow and Director of Studies of the Faculties of History and Social and Political Sciences at Robinson College. Deborah, the events celebrating the anniversary of well, I guess we should say some women gaining the vote are excellent. How did it all come about? A group of people 
involved in both the universities in Cambridge and in organisations from the town had been interested in producing something to celebrate that anniversary, particularly the anniversary of the law coming through, not using the vote, that came later, and not all women getting the vote, that came ten years after. But lots of us had been involved in other ways, in thinking about the suffrage, the campaign for the vote, people from theatre, people from art, photography, and academics. So a group got together and talked to people from the council who had agreed to support it, the town council. And together we created a kind of platform where those that wanted to make a contribution could share what they wanted to say and do. And it could then be made accessible to everyone who wanted to come along. So there was a conference, there were meetings, there's a showing of the film Suffragette, there's other events which will involve lots of people all over the town of Cambridge. In particular, there's a local association because Millicent Garrett Fawcett, leader of one of the big suffrage organisations, the biggest in fact, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, lived in Cambridge for a while with her husband, brought her daughter up here and her plaque has just gone up and we've commemorated that. So that provided another thing that made us all want to take action and people swung into action and created this programme of events. And really wide-reaching it is. There's something for everybody here, I would say. It's great. A really interesting woman as well, Millicent Garrett Fawcett. I remember covering that at school. Her sister was the very first female doctor, I believe. She married a politician who was very into women's suffrage as well. He was a politician. He was a government minister. He was postmaster general, person in charge of all the postal services. And he was a leading intellectual. He was Professor of Political Economy here in Cambridge. And he did all that commuting to his constituency. These were different days, which was part of the time in Brighton, as well as staying in Cambridge, having a flat in London. And she married him when she was really quite young. She'd got inspired by the philosopher John Stuart Mill, who proposed a change to the law about the vote in 1867. He said... Let's replace the word man with the word person. Mm. Uh, He wanted to give women the vote, and this, of course, failed. But she was inspired by this and went off to study it. She founded an organisation which put together all the little societies into a national union. She also helped her husband with his work. She was very interested in questions like refugees and war. And she was inspired, actually, like, many suffrage campaigners, by a wish to do things for the poor, particularly women and children. She saw their lack of representation as meaning something was missing from politics and something was missing for women and children. And if you put the two together, you gave the women representation. She said, if the men could speak for the women, then they wouldn't need the vote. But they have not. So women Mm. need to be able to speak for themselves. On Monday evening, you're going to be introducing the screening of a film called Suffragette. Interestingly, just as an aside, Toby Miller from our Bums and Seats show told me earlier that uh, Sarah Gavron, who is a director, took between six and seven years to pull that project together. And apparently this is the average for women directors. 
Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Because men will will be able to act much faster, but women still struggle to pull that together. But on the film, do you think that the film accurately depicts the history? It's complicated what that film is doing. It's telling a very powerful story, and it's a story based on writings by one part of the Campaign for the Vote, an organisation called the Women's Social and Political Union, the suffragettes, as they are usually popularly called. And they're the group that tend to come up most. You talked about school. They tend to come up most in school history. They, they form in the early 1900s because they're fed up with the existing campaign. It doesn't seem to them to be going anywhere. And they adopt some new tactics. And they move to London, the Pankhurst family involved with it. And it's their story that it tells, and it's a story based on their own writings about it. Emmeline Pankhurst, the mother, writes her first autobiography in 1914, long before women have actually got the vote, before the First World War. And it describes this struggle for the vote, and it describes the violence with which some women have been treated in public. But they also court arrest. They try and get themselves arrested. And in the magistrate's court, when they come to trial for offences of trespass and damage to property, they argue that they shouldn't obey this law. It's a political law because it keeps women out. They write up their own story and they tend to put their own contribution to the forefront. And that campaigning is quite effective. It gets more and more dramatic and more violent. Just after about eight years of campaigning in this way, they begin to attack property and they put bombs in post boxes. They write votes for women in acid on golf greens and cricket pitches, places where men play and women are excluded. And they leaflet and they speak in public. And the Pankhurst family Emmeline, the mother, Christabel and Sylvia, the daughters, and Adela, who is quiet and less recognised, put themselves to the forefront of the campaign. And that film focuses on their campaign. There are problems with the history because, in a way, it's saying the vote was won by the actions of the WSPU. And in general, I think most of us would say you had to have both. You had to have people campaigning changing hearts and minds, winning over voters in all parts of Britain. And you had the drama and the excitement of the suffragette challenge, which is increasingly in London, where the newspapers are, and keeps the issue alive. But you wouldn't really have one without the other, and they both play a very important part. In the end, women get the vote, which is decided in December to January, 1916 to 1917, in the middle of the war. They have a conference to talk about giving the vote to all men. Because one of the things people don't realise is that only 40% of men in London had the vote in 1914, for example. And a large number of young men fighting as soldiers, conscripts, after 1916, don't have a vote. So in order to give them the vote, they need to think again. And they start by thinking about the men. And then people say, we cannot ignore the women. They've declared a truce when war broke out, abandoned militant campaigning, swung behind the war effort, all 
most of the organisations, not all of them. Some oppose the war, arguing that it's something men made and women shouldn't play a part in it. But they're a minority. And thus, the Speakers' Conference, as it's called, which decides, has to decide which women should get the vote. And when they're campaigning for it, the question is, should it be women with property, which is what men had in the past? Should it be women who are married, or will they just vote like their husbands? Or should it be single women, because they are more independent? Should it be women who have contributed to the war effort, and somebody thinks of doing that, and then they realise you can't count everybody. Some people do voluntary work. So how you decide that? is very complicated. So in the end, and rather cynically, they go for women of 30 and over who are householders or married to householders. And there are several reasons, when I say cynically, that that is. It's because women won't be a majority. It's because they can say that they will start with the more reasonable type of women. And they can say that they're not rewarding violence or agitation, most of which is carried out by young women. But it is cynical because they do discuss, should it be 25? That would still make men a majority, but not so big a one. And I think they decide on 30 because it's less embarrassing to say there's a difference between 21 and 25 than 21 and 30. You're also doing a walk through Cambridge. I've done it a few times Mm -hmm. and it started off as a women's history walk for the Festival of Ideas. And I was inspired to do that by three things. One was that my first office when I came here on a research project a few years ago was in 2 Bennett Place on Lensfield Road. And it turned out to have been the office of the Women's Suffrage Association in Cambridge where they had a shop and they held meetings and printed flyers and organised things in Cambridge which was a real hotspot of suffrage. They mm. had, they sold the suffrage paper. Newsboys sold it on the streets, common cause. You could go out and buy it. When the song March of the Women came out 50 copies were sent straight to Cambridge because there was such enthusiasm <laughs> for learning the words and the music. Also, I was inspired by the fact that I went on a walk organised by Alan Brigham, who does his wonderful walks Mm. around pieces of Cambridge. And I saw that. And I went on another one organised by great suffrage historian Jill Liddington um, in, in London. And I thought, actually, we don't have that here. And it would be really nice. So we find different levels of activism, different spread of activism. Uh, And I... I like the way uh, Jill Liddington describes it. She says, in the garden of suffrage, there are many flowers and each plays its part in making that garden what it is. And I think she's absolutely right. What part would you have made in the garden had you been a young woman in the early part of the 20th century? I find it hard to imagine my situation compared to many of them. Is so privileged. I never had a question about getting an education or being able to work. I never had to ask anyone if I could do anything. Uh, even women students um, had to have chaperones for many events and they couldn't be out at night. They had to be locked in. So the mindset is a bit different from mine. But I think I probably would have been a militant suffragist. Would you really? (laughs) Well, that is, I'd have been very active. I'd have Mm. gone on demonstration and to meetings and I'd have researched the issues and corresponded with people. And I would have probably gone to some events organised by suffragettes. But I don't think I would have 
broken things. I think I'd have probably argued that peaceable means were probably more persuasive. But I agree with Mrs Fawcett when she's refused to condemn militant suffragettes. What they were doing was part of a campaign and she absolutely supported their right to do it. Well, thank you very much, Deborah Tom, for joining us and telling us all about women's suffrage. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you. I've much enjoyed talking about it. That was Dr. Deborah Tom from Robinson College in Cambridge talking to Linda Ness about the history of women's suffrage. The music was The March of the Women by Ethel Smythe from EMI Recording. And that was an extract of the interview. The interview in full can be found on Mixcloud. A shortcut can also be found on our Facebook page. I was talking to my daughter yesterday about the 100th year anniversary of women being given the vote and what's coming out in TV, Journey's End for the film. But she said, and it's quite right, she said lots and lots of things were done in 2014. It's, always, it's almost like they weren't going to wait for 2018. Yes. They wanted it all to happen. Yes. In 2014. Well, people can't wait for these anniversaries. Yeah, yes, <laughs> for some weird reason, but yes. and I And I think she's right because... That was the beginning of the war. 2018 is the 100 years, obviously, since the end of the war. Mm. It's almost like you that this is the year you want to remember it, really, yes. don't you? Yes, yes. But interestingly, my daughter was also talking about suffrage, and they were doing this in psychology, and they were using suffrage to talk about how to get people to change their minds. And they were using that as an example. You know, was it the aggression, aggression and the sad suicide and all the awful things that, that happened? Or was it just saying the same message over and over and over again? Or, you know, they were looking at different ways in which people are maybe not being manipulated, but change their minds, are persuaded into something. Are you talking about the, the women themselves and how they were going to... Uh, yeah, the, yeah. How, how they carried out the campaign, really. Well, because there were two, weren't there? There were suffragists... And then the suffragettes. And mm. if I'm right in saying that the suffragists were the one that wanted to promote um, equality and improve domesticity at home. And it was the suffragettes who are more the militants and yes. trying to um, be much more open in their actions and getting yeah. attention. They were the activists, I think. Yeah. But, but as Deborah Tom, Dr. Deborah Tom said, they were both activists in their own way. They exactly. just carried out you know, their actions in, in very different ways. One wanted to change the law and persuade people to do this and the other were, were fed up with it. They got fed up with it after a while and just, you know, wanted to uh, wanted to go out in the streets and do something. Listening to Dr Deborah Tom was really interesting. Oh, fascinating woman. And I would urge people to go and pick up, you can look on a Facebook page and you, you can find links to the full interview. That was just a portion of the interview. She was great because, of course, loves the topic, really, really, really knowledgeable, really interesting. And I couldn't cut all that stuff out and lose it. So we have got the full interview on the website. Yeah, and it must have been amazing just to sit there and listen to It her. was, actually. Yeah. 
it was it, it was almost like you know being in a lecture um and and you almost forgot at times that you were actually expected to participate you know and, and ask questions <laughs> <laughs> oh yes isn't that what you have to do linda yes. um my favorite question is that if she was in that time what would dr tom do yeah and i loved it because she said she would be an activist but if i remember she wasn't quite sure she would be that militant yeah she would she be. wouldn't be she did, didn't like violence she said she might she might have been um putting acid on the grass in golf courses oh yes that was was fantastic yeah yeah no you could do that yeah they were they were putting votes for women in acid so that it was marked on the on the greens in the golf courses because of course women weren't allowed in the golf course yeah some say that should still be the case yes yes that's still the case oh i can't believe that actually that's still the case now isn't it i think i think they've all been beaten down now i think beaten down we're going militant in the studio we are are. I think that the last course that tried to stop that, and it wasn't that long ago, I think they were overruled. Yes. Was that Glen Eagles? Wasn't no, that... it wasn't Glen Eagles. Oh. It was somebody else. And I think they were told if they didn't change the rule that they weren't going to be able to host some big golfing event. Yes. I think it was in Scotland. I'm pretty sure it was I think in it was. Yes, it was. That sounds about right. Yes, yeah. it wasn't Trump. Um, golf course. No, 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 no. We won't mention him. Across Cambridgeshire, 21st century women. As most of us are aware, and as Deborah mentioned in that piece, the Pankhurst family were well-known leaders of the suffragettes. Liz tells us about a protest which took place in 1906 and is taken from a book by Sylvia Pankhurst. This really gives a flavour of what it must have been like to take part in the suffrage movement at that time. This is an excerpt from Estelle Sylvia Pankhurst's Suffragette, the history of the women's militant suffrage movement of 1905 to 1910. In the preface, she says, Perhaps the women born in the happier days that are to come, while rejoicing in the inheritance that we of today are preparing for them, may sometimes wish that they could have lived in the heroic days of stress and struggle and have shared with us the joy of battle, the exaltation that comes to sacrifice of self for great objects and the prophetic vision that assures us of the certain triumph of this 20th century fight for human emancipation. There's so many bits I could choose to read out from this book. I'm going to go to chapter 6, October to November 1906. A protest meeting in the lobby of the House of Commons. 11 women go to prison. On October the 3rd, 1906, Parliament reassembled for the autumn session. A large number of our women made their way to the House of Commons on that day, but the government had again given orders that only 20 women at a time were to be allowed in the lobby. All women of the working class were rigorously excluded. My mother and Mrs Pethick Lawrence were amongst those who succeeded in gaining an entrance. They at once sent in for the cheap liberal whip and requested him to ask the Prime Minister on their behalf whether he proposed to do anything to enfranchise the women of the country during the session, either by including the registration of qualified women in the provisions of the plural voting bill, then before the House, or by any other means. The Liberal Whip soon returned with a refusal from the government to hold out the very faintest hope that the vote would be given women at any time during their term of office. On hearing this, Mrs Pankhurst and Mrs Pethick Lawrence returned to their comrades and consulted with them. The women had received a direct rebuff and they felt that they must now act in such a way as to prove that the suffragettes would no longer quietly submit to this perpetual ignoring of their claims. They therefore decided to hold a meeting of protest, not outside in the street but just there in the lobby of the House of Commons, of all places the most effective one for women to choose for a meeting because the nearest within their reach to that legislative chamber which had so frequently refused to grant them the franchise. 
Once made, the resolution was acted upon without delay. Mary Gawthorpe mounted one of the settees close to the statues to Stafford Northcote and began to address the crowd of visitors who were waiting to interview various members of Parliament. The other women closed up around her, but in the twinkling of an eye, dozens of policemen sprang forward, tore the tiny creature from her post and swiftly rushed her out of the lobby. Instantly, Mrs Despard, the sister of General French, a tall, ascetic-looking, grey-haired figure, stepped into the breach, but she also was roughly dragged away. Then followed Mrs Cobden Sanderson, a daughter of Richard Cobden, and many others, but each in her turn was thrust outside and the order was given to clear the lobby. Mrs Pankhurst was thrown to the ground in the outer entrance hall and many of the women, thinking that she was seriously hurt, closed around her, refusing to leave her side. Crowds were now collecting in the roadway and the women who had been flung out of the house attempted to address them, but were hurled away. Annie Kenny, who had scarcely recovered from the effects of her last imprisonment, had been told by the committee that she must not take part in any of the demonstration for fear that she should again be arrested. She agreed to run no risks, but she could not keep entirely away from the scene of action and standing on the other side of the road was now watching to see what might befall her comrades. In the midst of the struggle, she noticed that Mrs Pethick Lawrence was being roughly handled and impulsively ran forward to ask her if she were hurt. Being already well known to the police, she was immediately arrested. Mrs Lawrence was greatly distressed and cried out, You shall not take this girl, she's done nothing. But the only result of her protest was that she herself was also taken into custody. Before long, seven women had shared the same fate, including Mrs Irene Miller, my sister Adela Pankhurst, and Mrs Howe Martin, BSC, who had recently become Honorary Secretary of the London Committee of the Women's Social and Political Union. Meanwhile, some of the poor women who had marched from the East End and who had been denied admission to the lobby were resting their tired limbs on the stone benches in the long entrance hall, and after Mrs Cobden Sanderson had made her attempt to speak and been hustled away, she seated herself quietly beside these women and began to talk with them. Shortly afterwards, a young policeman came up and abruptly ordered her away, and as she did not go, he seized her and dragged her to the police station. The next morning, the women were brought up at Rochester Row Police Court before Mr Horace Smith. Mrs Cobden Sanderson's sisters, Mrs Cobden Unwin and Mrs Cobden Sickert, and several friends and relatives of the other women had come early in order that they might be sure of obtaining a seat in court. Whilst another trial was in progress, the usher had asked them to leave the court for the present in order to make room for other people, saying, you should be allowed in again when your own case comes on. They at once acceded to his request but were prevented from returning and was subsequently told that no woman would be allowed to enter. Some 20 or 30 of us had by this time congregated in the large entrance hall, but though men were constantly passing in and out of the court where the trial was taking place, admittance was denied to us. Many of us wished to testify as witnesses, but we were told we could not go into the court, and were taken into a side room where an attempt was made to lock us in. To prevent this, we insisted upon standing in the doorway. This is 21st Century Women. Now, the Little Princess Trust has recently been in the news as it was revealed that the Duchess of Cambridge donated hair that could be used in wigs used for young people going through chemotherapy. And 14-year-old Jess Hawkins has just had her very long hair cut and has also donated to the Trust. She is also raising funds for the cause. And she told Linda Ness why she wanted to do it. Last month we spoke to Gary Chapman, a Cambridge hairdresser who specialises in organising wigs for people suffering from hair loss. He explained about the Little Princess Trust and told the story about a little girl going through cancer treatment who was delighted with her new hair. 
It's recently been revealed that the Duchess of Cambridge has donated seven inches of her hair to the Little Princess Trust. But much closer to home, 14-year-old Jess Hawkins from St Neots has just donated over 11 inches of her hair to the Trust. And she joins me in the studio. Jess, you had beautiful long hair. Firstly, why did you want to cut it off? Well, I wanted to cut it off to donate to charity because it's something nice to do. My stepbrother, unfortunately, lost his hair and I watched him go through cancer a few years ago when he was seven. And I know quite a lot of people that have had cancer and survived. I just thought it'd be nice to do something. Did he have a wig um, or anything like that during his treatment? No. No? But you knew that that kind of thing happened and that... Yeah. Yeah. And that must have been really tough for you to watch that. Yeah, it was. Yes. So that's what made you think about it. And how long had it taken you to grow your hair that length? Because it was very long. It was down to your bottom, wasn't it? About five years. About five years of hard growing and fertilising the hair and all that kind of thing. Yeah. What made you decide to cut it? It was just for the charity, was it? Or were there other things as well? Were you fed up with the washing or anything like that? I guess so. I um, have, like, naturally curly hair because my mum. Is it her fault? Is it about the curly thing? Yeah. Oh, mums, I don't know. Yeah, it's just constantly just putting it up, so I thought I'll just cut it off and instead of just leaving it, I'll do something with it. Yeah, that was the the real thought, wasn't it? The the fact that that you could do something with it. Yeah. You'd heard of the Little Princess Trust. Yes. Yes, And, and you decided to do that. It's a big step, though, to cut off your long hair. Did you think a lot about it? Were you a bit worried before you cut it off about, you know, what what it was going to look like at the end? Yeah, I I didn't really think about what it would look like afterwards. I mean, I thought about doing it and doing it for somebody else, but after I did it, it was kind of a bit shocked, really, how short it was because I haven't had it that short in years. Well, I suppose you wouldn't have if, you, if it took you about five years to, to grow it. Yeah. But, you know, it always grows back. That's the thing, isn't it, about here? And what did your friends at school say when you told them that you were going to do it? At first, they were a bit worried that I wouldn't like it and that I'd regret doing it. Do they all have long hair themselves? Yes, yeah. They do. Are they thinking about doing the same as you? No. Oh, they're not? <laughs> well, you have to talk them round. And once you had it cut, what, what reaction did you get from them then? They all said how it like suited me and how it's such a good thing that I did and they were proud of me for doing it. Well, I think it's nice because it shows your pretty face because when you've got long hair, you know, you tend to hide behind it a lot of the time, don't you? Yeah. You also raised money in parallel with this. Tell us about that. Yes, I, uh, my mum encouraged me to start raising money for it and now I've raised about £400 on the Just Giving page which we will donate to charity to help cover the costs of making the wigs. That is really, really good because I'm sure that a lot of people donate their hair but they maybe don't think about that side of it. That, that must cost quite a lot of money to make these wigs. I believe that they use the hair of several people when they're making every wig so it's not just the one the one head of hair that the, the wig comes from, I believe. Yeah. And your mum is a hairdresser, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she uh, cut my hair. She was the one that... <laughs> She was the one that cut your hair. So she's the one that's responsible if you didn't like it then. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But you do like it, do you? Yeah, now I've gotten used to it and I'm glad I did it and I like it. I'll bet it makes hair washing day or, you know, if that's every day, much, much easier now. Yes, yeah, it does. It must dry in a fraction of the time. 
Yes, yeah, a lot uh, easier to uh, straighten as well. You've got beautiful, beautiful hair, I have to say. Lovely, dark, shining hair. It's beautiful. Will we speak to your mum for a little minute? Yeah. We're now speaking to Jess's mum, Fiona. So it was her decision, wasn't it? What did you think when she decided to cut off her very long hair? Were you punching the air and going, yeah, no more long washings? <laughs> I did think it would save me on shampoo and conditioner. <laughs> um, well, I, I think, you know, she took some thought into it. It was a really nice thing to do um so I supported her just wanted to make sure that I gave her a week really to really think about it yes um so when we set up the just given page and stuff and she was so excited to do it so um yeah really really pleased and proud of her it is a great thing to do because a lot of a lot of teenagers you know they they, they maybe don't think very much beyond themselves and what they're doing no. so it's a great <laughs> it's a great thing to do i mean i guess the impact of having a brother who who's been through that kind of treatment must uh, must have helped with this thinking yeah um I, boys have got quite short hair and when they lose their hair it's quite it's quite horrible and you know you see it every day but for girls obviously they have longer hair mm-hmm. so t- to be able to feel like a little girl and like a princess again when they put put the wig on i think is is just uh, so- something so amazing to do you know just to make that p- little person feel special yes no you're absolutely right and it's a fabulous thing to do and when you took the first cut <laughs> talk us through that it was nerve-wracking and Jess was quite shocked when I cut the hair off. She started, She did start to cry, bless her. She's like, what have I done? And I said, it's okay, It's for you know, you've done a really good thing here. Yeah. Um, and I just sort of tried to hug her and stuff, but I felt absolutely awful because I'm the one that let her do this and I'm also <laughs> the one who cut it. <laughs> so I felt so guilty afterwards. Um, I was relieved when like the next day or two that she actually started to feel a bit better about it. I didn't feel such a bad mum. <laughs> no, not, not at all. No, I think what she's done is a fabulous thing and I think now Jess realises that as well because there will be another little girl or an older woman maybe somewhere somebody somewhere who is going through a terrible time will uh, will be given hair back for a while and that's a really really good thing to do Jess yeah I think it was up to the age of like 24 or something 24 24 of the age that people would have these wigs for and stuff a little princess fund so Jess if anyone else is thinking about doing this and they're not too sure about how it's maybe going to feel what would you say to them now I'd say that it feels so good afterwards, knowing that you've helped somebody. It's just, it's hair will grow back, so it's not a big deal. It's surprising, a bit of a shock to begin with, but you know, when you've got used to it and it's, you see it, it's a really good feeling knowing that you've just helped somebody. Would you do the same thing again then? If you, uh, yeah, would you grow it and, and do exactly the same? Yeah. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? So if anyone is thinking about doing that out there, then we would encourage you to do the same. We'd also encourage you to go to Jess's Just Giving page. What we're going to do is we're going to put that on our Facebook page so that if you are interested in donating to the Little Princess Charity, then we will we'll put that link on our Facebook page. Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Jess and Mum Fiona. I think what you've done is absolutely brilliant and uh, I wish you all the luck growing us again so we can, uh, we can see you in five years' time for the next stage of the of the wig donation <laughs> thank you thank you if I could give you there's no place I'd rather be
that was Jess Hawkins and her mum Fiona chatting to Linda Ness. And wasn't she great? Didn't you love her? Yes, (laughs) did. I was so impressed with um, Jess. She had a lovely, lovely... She was quite shy, but underneath all that, a very brave little girl. She certainly is. Mm. Certainly is. Because I remember, you know, I had very long hair when I was about 16, 17. And having it cut, you know, it's a big thing. And the next day, I didn't say to anyone I was going to do it. And I... You know, we didn't think to donate it. There just wasn't, it didn't seem to be that around at the time, I guess. But it was a big deal. And at school, everyone was kind of going... Oh my God! What have you done to your hair? Well, that's what she said, didn't she, Jess? That yes. when she went, she was really frightened of the reaction she was yes. going to get. Yes. But actually, they all were very supportive, weren't they? They were. Yeah, they were. So um, I, I just want to tell that my mum had went through chemo and had to have a wig, and she loved it. So coming out the other side, definitely worth it. Definitely worth doing it. Across Cambridgeshire, 21st century women. So are you missing your chicken and chips then, there, Susie? No, not at all. No, me neither. In fact, when I saw those children outside the uh, shops on TV and Mm. they were saying, oh, I miss my KFC, (laughs) I had no sympathy whatsoever. No, I think it's much better for them. Yeah, absolutely. In light of what we're trying to get across to all of us that you can't eat rubbish food, Mm. that's one less thing to worry about. Well, apparently, corn, you know, the corn manufacturer, Mm. apparently they um, they contacted KFC and said, "We, we can give you some nuggets because, you know, there are actually... Corn, chicken nugget, you know, chicken lookalikey, uh, although very vegetarian nuggets. Oh, In fact, I think they're vegan, never mind vegetarian. So you can turn KFC into a vegetarian. Big vegan eatery. <gasps> yeah, it's still got a lot of Just because the, the delivery vans didn't turn up. <laughs> yes. I know I'm being so mean about those children, but they did make such a big thing on TV about the children standing outside and crying. I thought that was awful, actually. (laughs) Really awful. Well, apparently in Twitter, people were going, I don't know what to do anymore. (laughs) I think they were maybe being sarcastic. I don't know. Yeah, I think they were. Maybe they weren't. Bit like when there were no aeroplanes flying because of volcano dust. Yeah, tell me about it. I was stuck on the other side of the world, mate. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that, Linda. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes there's a silver silver lining, isn't there? That's true. To the cloud. Um, I, I sort of agree with you, but it depends on where we are in the world. You're absolutely right. I, I, yes. In fact, my son went to Bali four months ago and they had that threat of the Bali volcano exploding. So we said to Max, why why are you going now? He said, Mum, it, it, it's the TV and the media. They make such a big thing about it. It'll be fine. Well, actually, it was fine when he was there. But when he came back two weeks later, they did close down the airport. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to watch you don't get stranded in a disaster zone. Yes, absolutely. Mm, but maybe it will be nice not to come back and have a longer holiday. Well, it was because we went um, around the Red Sea again, free of charge, on a rather nice cruise ship. So, you know, silver lining. Yeah, yeah. silver lining, absolutely. <laughs> or silver cloud lining. <laughs> and on that note, that's all we have time for in this edition of 21st Century Women. Our huge thanks go to Jess Wilkins and her mum Fiona, Dr. Deborah Tom, Francis Reed. Andrew and Debbie from Visit Cambridge, and of course to our contributor Louise Wilson. If you're listening on HCR 104FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders and on Cambridge 105, it's 105 Sport. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in March. Until then, it's goodbye from guest presenter Susie Thorpe. Hello and (laughs) bye-bye. And to Liz Kelly. Bye for now. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. (laughs) 